Hey there, everybody. This is Josh Rayner, Editor-in-Chief of DC Comics News. Are you planning on heading to Wizard World Comic Con sometime this year? Well, we have a great deal for you. If you are planning to do so, you can get 10% off your ticket purchase by using the code DCNEWS at checkout. That's DC. N-E-W-S at checkout to save 10% off your tickets for Wizard World. And that's for any city that, uh, that they will be doing. So make sure you head over to www.wizardworld.com tickets and use the code DCNEWS for 10% off. Hi everyone, I'm here to tell you about the DC Comics News Podcast. Here every week to talk everything DC. Movies, TV, comics and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Regardless, you can catch us on every kind of podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere you find great podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) (laughs) No. If you're looking for the best, you've come to the right place. Welcome, comic book fans of all ages. This is episode number 17 of the DC Comics News, Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. And this week, just like every week, I go through that long list of new titles published by DC Comics each and every week. And I choose what I think and believe are the top five books that are released from DC Comics. And I give you a few reasons why I think it's so. Let's go ahead and dig right in with my first choice, Justice League Odyssey number 11. Now we are extremely deep into Year of the Villain, and we're now in the stage of the offer. The Justice League Odyssey team would seem to be too far away from all of that chaos, residing where they are in the ghost sector and knee-deep in the middle of a mission that has them partnering with Darkseid to put together his sepulchre and find a way, if it's possible, to try and save the multiverse from the unraveling that has begun ever since the destruction of the Source Wall. Now while I love this story concept, I'm gonna start out by saying One of the things I loved the most about this book was this absolutely gorgeous and beautifully detailed variant cover. It's absolutely stunning. Cyborg just appearing in such a human and detailed, intricately detailed portrait that just illustrates how potentially devastating this man could be, this cyborg could be, if he really sort of let loose. And it's an issue of trust that everyone who works with Cyborg has to consider because, I mean, at any given moment, he could simply use everything at his disposal and probably take down most of the members of his team, if not most of the enemies they face, but not in a way that he supports or they could approve. And that's why they're always willing to trust Victor, because when it comes to Silas Stone's youngest son, 
this young man finds a way to always do what he believes is the right thing. And that's important because right now the team is really facing a difficult challenge. They've been working with Darkseid to gather all of the materials that they need. Darkseid calls them relics. Victor has his own name for them. The rest of the team is too busy trying to figure out who's going to go with the final stage of the plan, which is once Darkseid activates the relics and begins the process of the sepulchre, will all of the team who have agreed to do so turn on Darkseid? Or will those who have been empowered during this process find that they actually side with Darkseid's approach and are willing to turn against the rest of the team? It's extremely important, and it's something that has been with the team for the past few issues, and it's one that's been building to a crux. But we open up with Lex Luthor talking with Brainiac about the idea of the sepulchre how Brainiac knows about it, but how he believes that his contingencies will be enough to prevent it. And then there's a discussion between Darkseid and the team. The acknowledgement that he knows that in order to make this work, the team must empower the worst thing they've ever faced. And one of the greatest challenges about Darkseid is trying to get the upper hand, which when they first found him in his weakened state, the team did. They could have eliminated Darkseid, and they didn't. And now they've allowed him to regain enough power that he's letting them know that they will go back to the way things were once he regains his power, but that the only way to save everything is to allow him to do this. It's a difficult issue, and it's one that brings up the challenge of trust, which is something that the team decides that they need to rely on Victor to sort of navigate for them because he's had the best understanding of the relics and he has attempted to gain control of them. While talking with Darkseid about this, he proceeds to engage deeper with these relics only to then realize to his great dismay that they have begun taking more control of him than he has of them, which means now the team has to face the challenge of a Victor Stone and a cyborg that is under a greater influence of Darkseid and the Mother Box than of his own values, let alone his own programming. I really enjoyed the way this worked out. I liked the idea of Victor being one of the voices of reason because of the way he's engaged with the relics. His reason is removed from the equation and the team will have to work together without this sort of balance that he provides, because if they don't work together, they'll lose Cyborg forever. While it was trust that made this issue such a compelling concept in regards to the story, the art backed it up completely with one, that really beautiful variant cover that I talked about, and two, with the sort of mystical and highly futuristic science that Brainiac and Luther are using to work out their plan. And then also with the portrayal of not only Darkseid, but Jessica Cruz and Cyborg, when they are shown having these moments of reflection, consideration, or understanding. And it really feels as though those emotions and thoughts are weighing on the features of their faces. The detail is just really gorgeous, and I thought it was a a really lovely book overall. When it comes to any of my weaker moments, uh, the only thing that I struggled with on the art side was the moment when the relics, as they're still being called, although they take on a new name in this book that we'll try and use from here on out, they, they are activated and this lightning or charge that seems to go with them. It creates this interesting sort of reddish lightning static that at first is intriguing 
and then starts to become a bit annoying. And I can tell because suddenly it's not as prevalent in the pages that follow its first introduction. And while there are flashes of it throughout the remaining pages of this issue, I think that if it had been a more compelling element, a more visually stimulating element, it would have been worked throughout these remaining pages and then instead of sort of fading off. When it comes to the story side, I really didn't find any weaknesses. And that's why it's really easy for me to give this book a solid four out of five. Although that's just my score. And the one thing I like the most about talking about comic books is comparing my score with somebody else's. Do me a favor. Stick around at the end. We have all these ways that you can let us know what you thought about this book or another book that you think belongs on the spinner rack. And I'd love to hear more about those after we get through the rest of these five books and you tell me whether or not my scores match with yours. Now, my second choice for this week Book number two is actually Hawkman number 14. Hawkman has been a bit of a staple on the DC Comics new spinner rack. I've really enjoyed the directions where the story has been going. Robert Venditti, who I always hope I say his name correct, has really brought together this idea of what is it like and what happens when a figure like Carter Hall, who has reincarnated all through time and space, is brought to a sort of understanding, a recognition of of what that means. And essentially, for Carter, it's been about reliving his past lives and seeing how they're all part of this larger story, where in his first incarnation, he was a terrible person who led a warmongering horde known as the Deathbringers to planet after planet, exacting a bloody tithe until he finally turned against them and then was forced to reincarnate again and again in order to save as many lives as he took. Now that he's gone through process of facing down not only his former lieutenant or second-in-command, Adam, but also the Deathbringers and sending them on a new mission, he's left with still the effect that the understanding of his past lives is beginning to bring about. And one of those elements is a figure that he thought he remembered, but he appears to have unfortunately forgot, and that would be the Shadow Thief. Now, it was interesting because just the other day I was looking through this book of old Andy Kubert work, and featured on the opening pages was Hawkman facing the Shadow Thief. And this was from over 30 years ago, which to me only points out just how much history these two characters have and why it's so interesting that Carter is struggling to remember him or sort of have this understanding about just why it is the Shadow Thief is here now and why his memories seem so scattered. One of the things that I love about this, though, is the way it all takes place inside a cave and hidden room of Mount Kenya. It's a sacred place. It's one of the earliest realms of knowledge and storytelling. It features all of these great cave paintings, this beautiful sort of four-cornered square with these torches that are lit and an emblem in the center. And it's a place where Carter can go and seek understanding. But what he finds is an enemy. The Shadow Thief moves from the shadows and in a Hawkman version, attacks with a mace, makes things extremely challenging for Carter. And then the Shadow Thief reveals that he can not only use shadows as weapons and throw them as objects, but that he can control other shadows and use them as these sort of evil minions or creatures who will do his bidding and who have an impressive strength that they're able to use to subdue Carter. But the final twist, and this could be a spoiler, is the fact that the Shadow Thief has come for Hawkman's shadow. And as he drags it away, Carter Hall is left 
surrounded by the destruction of one of the oldest historical sanctuaries ever to have existed and maybe one of the last to exist and in those flames we see this sort of dying shadow and this image of a broken and defeated carter one who must find a way to get back up and figure out what he's going to do about the shadow thief and the loss of his shadow i'm always amazed when an artist can demonstrate just just how clear the values are between light and shadow i think it's an amazing skill and one that I simply can't accomplish, or if so, I simply haven't grasped the understanding yet of how I would do it. So in this book, I really liked the way we start out in this sort of bright and open day and then move into Mount Kenya and this shadowy environment that naturally exists because of the flames and the uh, cave walls, but how even so, the shadow thief is brought to life in a way that feels so very real and yet so very classic and poignant. There was something about the way he was facing down Carter in this very ancient of structures, this very holy of places, and how the shadows and the light made that struggle seem so much more like a battle between light and darkness good and evil. It was a, a beautiful match to this great story, and one that I thought really made this book sink. That's why I was really happy to go ahead and give it a solid 5 out of 5. I thought it did everything I wanted. It provided me with the great story to launch the next art, a classic villain, one who I can really respect and admire. And then also, it gave me this beautiful context in which to view and enjoy the story. And that was with this contrast of light and shadow, the good versus evil, and the new struggle that Carter must rise up against but overcome. But that's just my opinion and score. Stick around for the end when I can hear yours. As we continue, it's time to move into my third choice, Batman number 74. In Batman 74, we continue with the really interesting <laughs> environment of a desert and the contest of wills being displayed between Batman and his father, a, well, a Thomas Wayne who's from another multiverse or another verse and who has made a plan to resurrect his wife, Bruce's mother, and reunite the family in order to do this. And they have to find one of Ra's al Ghul's Lazarus pits. That has led to a treacherous journey through this desert, facing off numerous hordes. And in this moment, we see that while they are talking, there is a story that Bruce always asked his father to read to him. A story about animals who fall into a pit and how each one is killed off by the others until the last two remain. And the final one tricks the other animal into eating himself, leaving the reader at the end of the story to wonder if the animal who survived to live the longest ever made it out of the trap. It's a point of contention during this story, and it's a way for Thomas Wayne to illustrate not only the strengths that he thinks are necessary in order to be Batman and also to make an impact on the world around them. And it's also an opportunity to point out that in Thomas's eyes, Bruce was shy, weak, prone to crying out, and that there was a concern on his part that maybe Bruce would need some help, that there would be something that Thomas could do at some point to bring about this change in his son or to be there, because he knew that eventually the way Bruce was would require help from his father. And because of this, we realize that there's a, a foundation behind Thomas's belief that was reinforced when Bruce's 
mother and Thomas's wife, Martha, was killed. And when that happened, it was clearly something that scarred him because when Bruce tries to prod a little bit further to learn what did occur, Thomas only responds with a statement that she did not die easily and also that the pain of her passing is something that he's had to live with and it's something that he struggles with. And it's also something that he wishes that he can redeem or in some way change, especially on, as he calls it, this earth. And what makes this really part of, you know, what I consider to be some of the best elements of the storytelling is the fact that this book of a child's story that Bruce always asked his father to read him was one full of really terrifying horrors. And yet it was something that Bruce's mother encouraged Thomas to continue reading because she believed that Bruce was the type of person who could see all those horrors. And yet, as Thomas puts it, still dream of a better world. And this is a really important thing to show that not only is it something that I think a lot of characters have come to identify with Batman, but it's also something that Thomas recognized and identified in his own son, if not through uh, his own sense of understanding, but maybe more so through the understanding that was gained through the perspective of his wife. And that it could lead to a telling moment, because once they're in the Lazarus pit, Batman and Thomas, Bruce and Thomas, Wayne, father and son, are not getting along, and they launch into a very bloody, very contentious fist fight. Well, a fight. I mean, at some point, they're using a lot more than fists. And only one of them is going to make it out. The final pages and the final panels of the last page show that one person does appear to be making their way out. But both men were wearing masks and black gloves. And in the final panel, you only see one black glove emerging from the pit that houses the Lazarus Pit. Who is it? Well, issue number 75 is coming, and the city of Bane is set to begin. I love the idea of this cliffhanger. I love the way it's presented. And while I was talking so much about these great moments that I loved in the story, the art masterfully presents it in a way that you feel like you're in this very difficult environment. Whether it's the glaring sun, whether it's the unending yellow of the sand, whether it's the constant attacks, or it's the contrast of nighttime and the way this extremely illuminated desert environment becomes a cold blue-gray shadow of itself, which is a perfect way to first introduce the Lazarus Pit, and then by the end, as dawn has arrived and a new day is beginning, to show one hand coming out of that pit. Bruce or Thomas? We'll have to wait to the next issue to find out, but I thought this was a really wonderful way of using children's stories, great art, and a conversation between father and son to set up the identities of these two characters and to maybe once again point out just what it is that they're fighting for, but telling it through the eyes of each other. This was a book that I had no problem giving a solid 4.5 out of 5. When it comes to any weak moments, I struggled to find any. However, there was a part of me that just had a little bit of wondering curiosity, and that's what brought me down from a 5 out of 5 to a 4.5. But that's just my score. What's really going to get my attention is when I hear what your score is, and I get the chance to find out really what you think and what your score is for this book, or if this book even made it onto your top 5 on the spinner rack that you host for yourself every time we're comparing notes on each and every episode. Stick around to the end for the ways that you can let me know just what you thought about Batman number 74.
Now for my fourth choice, I had to go with the Event Leviathan number two. Maybe I didn't have to. It's probably more something like I wanted to. And I really, really wanted to. Because what I really have enjoyed about the Event Leviathan storyline is the sense of mystery. One, the mystery discovered in book one by Lois Clark and those investigative hero types. And now, too, we get a chance to meet with the detectives, Batman, Red Hood, and a conversation between two very different approaches to unraveling a mystery and the sharing of details that is difficult due to the tension that exists between Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd. I really love the storytelling that sets up this conversation and then proceeds to show their voiceover in panels that talk about the question, Sam Lane, a mysterious attacker, and the little bits of clues that they can use to piece together what both men believe is an understanding of either Leviathan's motivations or a way to do something about stopping the actions that Leviathan has undertaken, which have destabilized and destroyed almost every covert organization in the world. I also really loved the conversation and interaction between the figure that's come to be known as uh, the face, uh, although it's masked, or the mask that is Leviathan, when Patrick O'Brien, aka Plastic Man, is in a morgue to examine a body, and the Leviathan figure meets him, challenges him, and suggests that for all of O'Brien's attempts to work with different superhero teams, the Secret Six, the Terrifics, the FBI, the All-Star Squadron, the Freedom Fighters, somehow none of it's been enough for Plastic Man. And now Leviathan is there with an offer. One that suggests that if Plastic Man is willing to consider doing things in a different way with a different organization, he might achieve the results he's always hoped and strived for. What makes this book really sing for me, though, is the moment when Jason Todd and Bruce Wayne realize that they have been talking about this case for two different reasons. Jason's is to gain a better understanding of what's going on and to see what direction Batman is leaning in his investigation. For Batman, it was about gathering enough heroes to let Jason know that they think he is the prime suspect to be the man who resides under the mask, under the guise of Leviathan. I really love the way the history between Jason Todd and Bruce Wayne is a part of this already established sort of cautious trust and how in so many ways it is used to not only tell the story but to bring it to its pivotal moment the moment when batman lets jason know that he and though he's consulted with believe that it's most likely that leviathan is run by jason todd otherwise known as red hood the outlaw otherwise known as the only robin to die in the service of batman and to then become a resurrected symbol of what happens when a good idea like the light and Robin to balance Batman is twisted into Red Hood the Outlaw and the Jason Todd we now have in the DC Comics universe. The storytelling was masterful and I loved the use of light, shadow, and also the sort of noir tint that was placed upon this issue. The recognition that this was a story about detective work and a mystery and about how those questions can only be answered by those who work, live, and find comfort in the shadows. The shadows are extremely well used here and they make the moments when Batman and and Jason are talking with each other under a full moon seem very stark and loaded and because of that there is this great feeling that so much more is going on than just a mentor and his protege talking about a case it should probably come as no surprise 
that I gave this book a solid score and I was happy to present it with a 5 out of 5. I really thought that everything that's being uh, presented in this detective story was not only well told, but also well framed in a way to lead to this possible suggestion that Jason Todd is the face, voice, and the figure known as Leviathan. And also this idea that there's a, a, a sort of growing distrust that exists within the hero community and that many of those who learn about the story will have to choose whether or not they side with Batman or Jason Todd and that that could lead to a very interesting development and confrontation down the road. Now for my fifth and final choice. It's been my pleasure to bring every issue of Naomi to bear and to feature on the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I have really loved this Wonder Comics storyline that has presented uh, a series of mysteries to a character, this young woman, Naomi, and at each opportunity continues to twist my expectation, and I would think the majority of readers' expectations, so that what should be something that is straightforward or familiar continues to move in directions that are not only unfamiliar, but because they are such a surprise and such an unexpected development, make this story so much more engaging and also something that I personally can't put down. In the storyline so far, Naomi has realized not only that she has amazing powers, but that she needs to learn how to use them because someone of great power and importance is coming for her. Now, I love the way it starts out with Naomi telling this story to her oldest friend, her closest friend, and then how that story is interrupted when the main villain, someone she's only just learning about, arrives and brings her to the place where she was born. And while that's extremely exciting, and I love the development that allows both Naomi and myself as the reader to understand more about her history, when this is all happening, we, we also see that at the same time, Naomi's best friend is having a conversation with her parents and mysterious mechanic and former planetary warrior D about what it means that Naomi is this figure who can do these amazing things and what it's like for her friend to watch someone she's known or thought she knew create a portal into a different world, disappear through it with a terrible enemy, and then try to explain it to parents, one of whom, the mother, is distraught and desirous to get to Naomi and protect her, and a father who's known that this is something that is always coming, and it's something that he tries to tell to mom again and again. Whether or not she's actually listening, or whether she's focused more on protecting her daughter, is a challenge as we move back into the story of Naomi, and we learn just how much she didn't know about her world, where she come from, or what she's capable of. In an interesting development, the world that they arrive on is actually Earth. It's unclear if it's a future Earth, a parallel Earth, a multiverse Earth, but during their conversation, we also learn that the bad man, Zumbado, is someone who wishes to connect with Xiaomi because of her power, and someone who wishes to let her know that he believes he is on the side of the right, and that because of that, he believes that they can work together. Naomi will have nothing to do with this because she was listening when Zumbado said he was going to take her world the earth, and that it was actually already his. After a few really awkward moments and a serious clash, Naomi breaks through the veil, 
separating the earth she's on with Zumbato and the earth that she left with her parents. And she arrives to find them lost, confused, scared, and wanting to help her in some way. But it's only up to Naomi when Zumbato comes tearing through the portal and launches his attack. But this is where Naomi really has her moment and shines. She takes hold of Zumbato and says that this is her earth and that he's never going to touch it. And then she rips off one of these sort of weird tendrils that looks like a giant kind of tongue and then punches him through the portal back into his own world. Portal closes behind him and Naomi and her family are left wondering what's going to happen next. Now, because this was issue number six and it was a limited series, that means that Naomi's story will pick up later in the fall in something that is being titled Naomi 2. I can only hope that this means that we get to see so much more of Naomi. I love this story. I thought the art was so beautiful. I love the way it continues to use light and shadow to illuminate these amazing powers, this strange new story, and these characters. Now, the only thing that really sticks out for me as a weakness is the name of the villain, Zumbato, Zumbedo. It just doesn't have a terrifying feel to it, and it also just feels like someone was struggling to use letters from the alphabet that aren't commonly used in names, in words, or to describe or title a villain. Really, that was it. There are so many different hues of blue, green, pink, so many different types of shadowing and so many different ways that light is shaped in this book that while I love talking about the story, what constantly pulled my eye were these images that I wanted to focus on that I couldn't while I was reading the story, but that afterwards, when I come back to look upon it again and again, I keep finding myself drawn to a new element, to a new detail, to something I hadn't noticed before. And I love when masterful artists are able to do this, when they can sort of present a picture that you think you've already looked at, that you think you understand, and then when you look a little bit closer, you realize you weren't really paying attention. But that now that you are, what you should be seeing is everything that's there. Jamal Campbell does an amazing job, clearly great communication and relationship with writer Brian Michael Bendis. I love this series of Naomi. I've really enjoyed every issue. I thought this issue number six wrapped up the story arc, showed the potential behind Naomi, and also created so many avenues and directions for this story to continue that I'm really looking forward to picking up Naomi too. It's a story that has found a way to make me believe and also really sort of inspire me to this idea of what new heroes can be who they can look like, and what they're capable of doing. Naomi's shown me that and more, and I'm more than proud to give this book a solid 5 out of 5. Now, when it comes to finding DC Comics News Podcast or the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, the DC Comics News Broadcasts are available on all the major podcast platforms, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play. So please head over, subscribe, rate, and review. I think we're worth 5 stars. If you agree, I'd love to hear why and how. And if you don't, well, I'd like to hear that too, just so I can know how we can make it better. When it comes to letting us know what your scores are, you can follow us on so many different social media channels and platforms, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just tag us with the at symbol DC Comics News. And when you do, let us know your top five Spinner Rack books, your scores for each of those books, or if you see a book that we both agreed on, but you had a different score, well, tell me about that too. And in a final note, just a reminder, 
that we always like to share. Read more comics. This has been the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Thanks for joining me. Can't wait to sit down with you next time for my top five books from DC Comics. See you then.